Here's a reminder that you are listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. You can listen to podcasts of this and many other IRIS programs at iowaradioreading.org. Welcome back to IRIS. Now we'll continue with the Des Moines Register. And we'll touch base with a little sports. And first, I'll just let you know what sports are on today so you can tune in if you so choose. I'll keep an eye on the, my list and make sure you aren't already missing something. Auto racing at 1.30 today on ABC. There's Formula One racing. It's the Lenovo United States Grand Prix in Austin, Texas. And on CNBC, also at 1.30, there's the FIM... Moto GP, the Guru by Giffrin, Australian Motorcycle Grand Prix. That's in Phillip Island, Australia. At 2.30 on NBC, NASCAR Cup Series will go. It's the Forever 400 presented by Mobile One, the playoffs. And this is round of eight. And that's at the Homestead Miami Speedway in Homestead, Florida. Uh, at noon, there's college soccer, men's college soccer. A nice Ivy League clash between Harvard and Penn. That's on ESPNU. Uh, Women's college soccer at 1 p.m. on the uh, Big Ten Network, Wisconsin at Penn State. And at 2 o'clock on the um, ACCN, Pittsburgh at Clemson. At, uh, let's see, uh, college volleyball at 1 p.m. on ESPN, University of Central Florida at Baylor. Uh, That's women's volleyball. At 3 p.m., also Women's College Volleyball on ESPN2. Kansas uh, plays at TCU. Uh, one On golf at 1 p.m. Uh, on the CW, the Live Golf League in uh, Saudi Arabia has a final round of the Royal Greens Golf and Country Club in Jeddah. And at 2 on the Golf Channel, the PGA Tour Champions, the Dominion Energy Charity Classic Final. Um, there's some uh, Major League Baseball at 8 o'clock. Uh, or that'd be 7 o'clock, excuse me. I, I'm giving you Eastern times. You might want to really watch this. At 7 o'clock, the American League Championship Series resumes. Texas and Houston are playing. And at 1 p.m. for NFL football, uh, CBS regional coverage includes Cleveland at Indianapolis or Buffalo at New England or Washington at the New York Giants. On Fox, regional coverage includes Las Vegas at Chicago. Atlanta at Tampa Bay or Detroit at Baltimore. At 4.05 on Fox, you have Pittsburgh at the L.A. Rams. At 4.25 on CBS, uh, we've got Green Bay at Denver or the Chargers at Kansas City. And at 8.30 on NBC, the Dolphins will be going to play the Eagles in Philadelphia. So that's some of the stuff that's on TV today. I'm just going to read a little story on volleyball, women's volleyball. An Iowa family's love for volleyball creates four Division I players. And this is, uh, these kids are from Dyke. Some of the biggest volleyball battles for Dyke New Hartford's Peterson family happened on the specially made court at their house. The court comprised of a dog leash tied to a basketball hoop at one end and a pole on a deck at the other is where sisters Sydney, Bailey, Peyton, and Jaden often played against each other while their mom, Bobby, watched. It was nothing fancy, Bobby said. It was more than serviceable for the two sets of twins who didn't need much or really ask for much when it came to volleyball. All they really wanted was a place to occasionally work with with Bobby. 
the women's volleyball coach at the University of Northern Iowa, and Annette to use uh, so they could play against each other whenever they had time to get a game in. There's been so many games back there, Sydney said. It, was, uh, it turned out to be one of the most important spots for the development of what has become one of the best, best volleyball families in the state. The two oldest, Sydney and Bailey, have already played. Excuse me, I've got to find my place. It changed pages. Played. Almost there. Thank you for your patience. I know where it is. It's here somewhere. There it is. <laughs> Thank you. I have already played Division I volleyball. Now Peyton and Jaden, both seniors at Dyke New Hartford, are getting ready to do the same. That's four D1 athletes in one family, Sydney said. That's pretty amazing. What's even more amazing is what they've accomplished together. Bobby never pushed her daughters to play volleyball. They just naturally gravitated to the sport. It's easy to see why. Bobby was a star herself, first at Dyke High School and then at Northern Iowa, where she was named a first-team All-Gateway Conference pick from 1987 to 89. After graduating, she played professional with the Iowa Blizzard of the National Volleyball Association. Bobby then returned to Northern Iowa as an assistant coach for the Panthers from 1995 to 96 and 1998 to 2000. She was the interim head coach for the 1997 season before taking over for good in 2001. Despite her heavy involvement with the game, she never pressured her kids to join in. Sometimes she did the opposite. Bobby supported Sydney when she was more interested in basketball. She encouraged Jaden to play soccer and basketball, both sports in which she thought her daughter could have a future. Still, one by one, the girls grew to love volleyball. I just think being surrounded and just being around the student-athletes and seeing their love and passion for the game, Bobby said. There were plenty of those opportunities. The family has pictures of Sydney and Bailey crawling on the floor at the West Gym when they were just a few years old, chasing volleyballs. The two sets of twins, born six years apart, attended practices and games and went on the road every now and then with their mom and the Panthers. They popped into workouts to watch her, their co watch her coach. They grabbed front row seats at all the home matches and went with Bobby and their dad, Dwayne, when the Panthers took trips overseas. Panther players became their idols. They'd sometimes sit with their mom as she watched film. There was always volleyball on during volleyball season, Sydney said. Bobby could quickly tell the girls were fans of it all, especially Sydney, who peppered her mom with questions while they attended the Final Four. Sydney wanted to know why a player was here or there and why they were doing certain things. She was only five years old, and she was just mesmerized by what was going on, and she was asking me questions that I'm like, okay, a five-year-old should not be asking those kinds of questions, Bobby said. They were all interested, and they all wanted to get better, so they tried to tap into their mom's expertise as much as they could. Bobby, who didn't want to get in the way of their girls and the girls' coaches, was willing to offer helpful hints only when her daughters requested it, and they did. A lot, but Bobby tried not to make it uh, make it coaching. She tried to make her lessons into games, sometimes challenging the girls to get twenty rallies in a row. They'd want to stay out so late that Dwayne had to bring light out of the garage for them to see. It was more like a fun little game, and all of us were way too competitive to not get it done. 
Sidney said. The four used their homemade court to play one-on-one or two-on-two games. The matches were intense and fiery and would usually end with the losing team or individuals storming off. The anger would linger throughout the evening. We we'd go to dinner and it'd be silent, Sidney said, but the game to get but the time together worked. Dyke knew Hartford volleyball coach Diane Harms had a good idea uh, that was headed her way before the four Peterson girls even got to high school. Harms, who had played against Bobby in high school, saw the girls playing AAU in fourth grade. The talent was obvious right away. You could just see they were just athletes back then, and then as they grew, what they were able to do with the ball and everything on the court was pretty special, Harms said. All the time being in the gym and watching volleyball with their mom had given them a high IQ for the sport. Their experiences getting reps in the backyard helped make them into stellar and determined athletes. Bailey and Sydney guided Dyke New Hartford to state championships during the 2014, 2016, and 2017 seasons. Sydney was selected as the 2016 Class 3A Player of the Year as a junior and the Class 2A Player of the Year as a senior in 2017. Peyton and Jaden have been just as successful, taking their team to the title game during their first three seasons, tallying championships in 2020 and 2021. The success of the Peterson girls caught the attention of college coaches throughout the nation, including their own mom, who wanted them to play at Northern Iowa. It wasn't easy for any of them. Bobby not only had to recruit her own daughters, but help them during the process, sometimes taking them to different schools and hear pitches from other coaches. To make the situations more comfortable, Bobby offered to help help, uh, away any of the conversations if they wanted. Step away from any of the conversations if they wanted. Just a little awkward, Bobby said. But it worked out for everyone. Bailey committed to Northern Iowa and played for her mom. Sydney, who dreamed of playing in the Final Four, went to Texas and was a part of the team's runner-up finish in 2020. Before she finished up her eligibility, she transferred to Northern Iowa to reunite with her mom and sister. It turned into a special season for them with the Panthers tallying a 27-8 and mark and an 18-1 and record in the Missouri Valley Conference play. I didn't think that I would ever get the chance to play with her on a team like that after high school, Bailey said of her sister. It's a similar path for Peyton and Jaden. Peyton committed to play at Louisville. Jaden will play for her, their mom at Northern Iowa. That means time is ticking on their time together on the volleyball court. So the whole family is trying to make the, the most of it. Sydney, who works as a teacher at Cedar Falls High School and is a member of the volleyball coaching staff, goes to as many matches as possible. So do Bobby, Dwayne, and Bailey. When it's all over, I'm going to be a little tearful, Peyton said. But right now, I don't think it's settled. I'm just trying to enjoy everything. And that story was brought to you by Mr. Tommy Birch, the registered sports writer. I'm going to read an article by Eli McCown, and it's about high school football. Valley clinches playoff spot with 42-18 victory against Marshalltown. West Des Moines Valley came into its game against Marshalltown with a mountain of pressure to keep an over 30-year playoff streak alive. A win assured the Tigers would make a top 16 for the RPI and make the playoffs, but a loss made it all but certain they would not. Their mentality for this game, then? 
Leave no doubts on their end and put it in the hands of the RPI. <clears throat> Senior running back Damon Head and the Tigers 4-5 to did just that, dominating from the first whistle and beating Marshalltown 42-18. to With a win, they secured a playoff bid by rising from number 18 in the RPI to number 14. Coming into the game, Tigers coach Gary Swenson had all the confidence in this world his team would come through. <clears throat> Quote, we felt confident we'd made the playoffs, Swenson said. For a team that had only won three games, we still felt confident we'd win. It was a near-perfect first half for Valley, outside of some penal- penalties that drew the ire of Swenson, and the team went into the break with the 42 to zero lead. Marshalltown, which is 2-7, two two found success in the second half of the backup units in the Tigers with Johan Gomez hauling in two touchdown catches. However, the lead from the Tigers was too much to overcome. Against a wave of adversity, Valley stays alive. It has not been the season Valley imagined by a long shot. Ending the regular season at 4-5, the Tigers were plagued by injuries before the 2023 campaign even kicked off. Star junior wide receiver Zay Robinson was out with a season-ending injury following by several other players as the season continued at key positions like quarterback and center. Players like sophomore Drake DeGroote had been forced to step in and have growing leaps and bounds in their first handful of varsity starts to keep this team afloat. Quote, I would challenge you to find a team in Iowa that hasn't had to deal with injuries, Swenson said. We know that it's going to happen. I think right now we're as healthy as we've been, unquote. These injuries and young starters like DeGroote and McGregory being counted on also came along with one of the most difficult schedules in the state of Iowa, beginning with the powers of Southeast Polk and Dowling Catholic and continuing on against Johnston, Waukee, and Waukee Northwest. Now this team will enter the postseason arguably more battle-tested than anyone in the state. As a program that has entered the playoffs as a lower-seeded team, the know-how is also there to keep alive. Quote, last year we had 14th seed and we ended up in the state championship game, Swenson said. You just try to advance one game at a time. Damon Head carries Tigers through game, tough season. The offense has struggled throughout the year with top weapons like Robinson and quarterbacks falling to injury, but Head has been the steady presence in this group from the first game. That didn't change in their final regular season outing as he rushed for over 150 yards and four touchdowns in just the first half. After the Tigers forced a three and out on the Marshalltown's first drive, Head got the ball three times on Valley's five-play touchdown drive, including the two-yard scoring run to make it 7-0. He followed it up on the following drive with a 61-yard scamper to the house to make it 14-0. After a pair of touchdown receptions from Valley's receivers, 
He scored two more times and ran for a 62-yard gain before the end of the season quarter, second quarter, to make it a 42-0 halftime score. He did not play in the second half, even if his final stat line suggested he did. After playoff pairings were announced Saturday, Valley found out it will be heading west to face Pleasant Valley in the round of 16. The winner of that will face the victor between Waukee and Prairie. That's a tough pairing if you're Valley. However, the head and Swenson on the other side, uh, Pleasant Valley is going to be saying the same exact thing. We'll just give it our best shot and see what happens, Swenson said. Bobby, back to you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, I'd, I'd read everyone a little account of yesterday's Iowa game, but I don't think anyone wants to hear that. Uh, it was pretty dismal. <laughs> they lost. Uh, I'm going to jump to Nation and World for a bit. And the headline on this is Trump settles into role of defendant. This is from the Associated Press. After turns as a real estate magnate, a New York tabloid mainstay, a reality TV star, and president of the United States, Donald Trump is setting into a new role, defendant. The frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination spent two days last week in a Manhattan courtroom where a civil fraud trial is unfolding. Trump is accused of grossly inflating his net worth and the value of marquee assets on paperwork used to secure financing and make deals. In the courtroom, Trump is often subdued, sitting between his lawyers and staring straight ahead with a scowl as he studiously ignores his adversary, New York Attorney General Letitia James. But when he steps into the hallway where a flanks of TV cameras awaits, Trump transforms into his familiar political persona, eager to spin the proceedings in his favor. Quote, if I wasn't here, probably, maybe, people wouldn't see the facts the way they are, Trump said during one of his swings through before the camera Wednesday. Trump, who also attended portions of the civil trial earlier this month, is under no legal obligation to attend the proceedings. But in a preview of how he'll likely approach the more serious criminal trials that will begin in the coming months, Trump uses the appearances as an extension of his presidential campaign, betting he can shape perceptions and portray himself as a political leader under attack. The strategy has helped energize his supporters and fill his campaign coffers by casting his legal troubles as part of a broad conspiracy to deny him the presidency and rob him of the real estate empire he spent decades building. But it's also testing the limits of Trump's ability to harness his showmanship in a way that bends political and legal realities. During the same week that Trump was largely focused on New York, his legal vulnerabilities intensified elsewhere. In Washington, a federal judge imposed a limited gag order barring Trump from making statements targeting prosecutors, possible witnesses, and court staff. For someone who sees few limits in attacking his perceived enemies, that order may be tested soon. And in Georgia, 
Lawyers Sidney Powell and Kenneth Cheesebro pleaded guilty last week to reduce charges over efforts to overturn Trump's 2020 loss in the state. The deal with Atlanta prosecutors could heighten Trump's legal exposure here, there, if they agree to testify against the former president. On top of that, Trump was overshadowed by the escalating war between Israel and Hamas, as well as the failure of Republicans to elect a new Speaker of the House. While Trump's initial appearances drew a media mailstorm with cable news networks airing live footage of his motorcade journey, this week's have drawn far less attention. There have been fewer reporters and more empty seats in the courtroom gallery as news outlets have pulled back on covering his courthouse sojourns because the novelty has worn off. Unaccustomed to losing the spotlight, Trump acknowledged the challenge Tuesday. He said, Despite my being here, the talk is all about Biden getting ready to fly to the Middle East to see Abbas. Meeting, uh, meeting, meeting arranged and Abbas just canceled, he wrote on his social media platform. He continued, No respect for the United States of America. Close quote. His public mood shifted throughout his time in the trial. At the trial, he emerged from the courtroom elated on some days, predicting that at one point that 80% of the $250 million fraud case would be thrown out because the judge had been receptive to an argument by his lawyers, uh, an argument by his lawyers. Other times, he has come out fuming, like on Wednesday when he accused the government of lying under after one of his lawyers alleged a witness had perjured himself. Again and again, he cast the proceedings as rigged, a disgrace, and part of a broader plot by Democrats to hobble his chances. He said, I should be in Iowa now. I should be in New Hampshire now. I should be in South Carolina now or someplace else campaigning, he complained Tuesday. In the courtroom, he'll lean, on occasion, he'll lean in occasionally to confer with counsel and, uh, and follow along with a live transcript of the proceedings on a screen in front of him. Sometimes he'll flip through a pile of papers or react to testimony with a grimace or other expression. On Wednesday, Judge Arthur Ngoran warned Trump and others involved in the case to keep their voices down after he conferred animatedly with his lawyers at the defense table while a witness was testifying against him. Trump threw up his hands in frustration and grumbled to his lawyers, prompting state lawyer Kevin Wallace to ask Engeron to ask the defense to, quote, stop commenting during the witness's testimony, close quote, adding that the exhortations were audible on the witness side of the room. The judge then asked everyone to keep their voices down, particularly if it's meant to influence the testimony. Otherwise, Trump has shown unusual restraint for a man who's used to being the center of attention, able to say and do as he pleases. While Trump's appearances in New York over the past few weeks have been purely voluntary, that will change as the civil case continues and his four criminal cases move forward, move toward trial. The former president will be, will be required to return to New York to testify in his civil trial, likely in a few weeks. His lawyers have already told the judge he'll be unavailable for several days around the November 7th off-year off election. And back to you, Mark. I'm going to read an article from Iowa Life, and it's about a, uh, a new restaurant starting up, and there are some nice-looking pictures of food. 
uh, pan-roasted duck breast. That comes in close second for the best dishes of the year. The pavlova capped off one of the best meals I've eaten in Des Moines, says Richard Lane for the register. And a potato gnocchi at Oak Park features dumplings and a lemon butter sauce with a potato tuile over the top. Mm. Is highly anticipated Oak Park restaurant in Des Moines worth the hype in big letters? The long wait for the new American restaurant that uses French techniques on its menu ended on Tuesday night when Oak Park opened on Ingersoll Avenue. Reservations for one of the most anticipated new restaurants of the year in Des Moines opened last week with many eager diners booking tables through the end of 2023. On Tuesday, the restaurant glowed from its perch at the corner of 39th Street with tables filled with customers, each at a different stage in their meal. The yellow lights off the transom windows above the bar area softly let the neighborhood know Oak Park is open. Rarely has a restaurant opening in Des Moines felt so calm with nary a hair out of place or linen askew on a table. Looking into the kitchen from outside through the big picture glass window that gives diners the chef's at the chef's table an alternate view, the kitchen staff seem to reach their elegant dance of cooking, plating, and sending out dishes in an orderly fashion. Some even laughed, enjoying the first night of service. Inside, owner Kathy Fairman and her husband Bill warmed, warmly greeted diners as they walked through the doors. But for all the appearances, is Oak Park really worth the hype? Does it live up to the expectations of a high-end dining experience worthy of a special occasion celebration or even just for a glass of wine at the bar? Let's find out. The setting at Oak Park. We sat in the East Solarium next to the sideboard from the West End Architectural Salvage on buttery leather chairs you never wanted to leave. Our crisp, soft, white tablecloth featured gold and white charger plates with silverware on either side, a small water glass, a wine glass, and a neatly folded napkin. A candle holder from the Prairie School of Architecture sat in the middle. The restaurant felt as if it had been in the neighborhood for years. Everyone moved at a smooth pace, neither in a hurry nor hustling to serve the next table. Servers patrolled the room with water, hostesses noted the number of diners still eating, and managers touched tables checking on each course. What to order at the Oak Park? Admittedly, we ordered much more than a normal couple would. After our drinks came out, I had the Oak Park Manhattan made with the restaurant's own whiskey, made at the Foundry Distillery in Valley Junction, and my friend ordered the Garden Lemonade, a thoughtful non-alcoholic drink that used ingredients for the neighboring garden. And a mousse-bouche, a gift from the chef, greeted us. The crab coquette with a smoked aioli was the perfect three bites to set the tone for the meal. We started with gnocchi, a stunning dish with soft pillows of 
in a buttery lemon sauce with a pretty potato twill covering the dish like a piece of lace. The kitchen uses the entire potato in the dish using the skin for the twill. We continued with the butternut squash and king crab bisque, a silky smooth soup with flakes of tender crab throughout. Not too much, not too little, and it had a nice earthy quality to it. We also shared the roasted beet and avocado salad with tender quarters of golden and red beets and a lime vinaigrette. Everything had a fresh brightness to it, tasting as if it came from the garden that afternoon. Some people turn their noses down at paying for bread service, but the brioche with a whipped vindaloo curry butter on the side was worth every bite. It tasted as light as air in the middle, just enough light crunch on the crust. My bet is you won't forget the taste of the heavenly butter. For entrees, we opted for the pan-roasted duck breast and the bacon-glazed pork chop. That pork chop is the best thing I've eaten this year. Maybe even the last year, too. It was so tender, and the bacon glaze over the top made every bite better than the last. Oak Park uses a Jasper charcoal oven from Spain to cook its meats over oak and brings in Berkshire pigs raised in Iowa for its pork. One note, you'll notice that many of the ingredients used at the restaurant come from local producers. Whether it's Grade A Gardens in Urbandale or Dogpatch Urbandale Gardens in Des Moines, as well as those who provide the Berkshire pigs, herbs, and more. Each, each gets recognition on the menu. The duck breast included two healthy slabs of cooked medium rare with a pork sausage on the side and a cherry demi-glace glace. Again, a deft hand cooked this dish to the perfect temperature, and you can taste the quality of the ingredients every bite. For dessert, we split the pavlova, a soft-baked meringue with a mascarpone mousse inside and a fig sorbet on the side, a delightful way to end dinner. What was it unexpected at Oak Park? Seeing all the thoughtful touches come together really made a difference and will resonate with diners, whether it's the glass bottle for tap water that matched the rocks tumbler and came with a stopper, the servers using a leather notepad to take our order, or the sharp houndstooth vest with the restaurant's signature green tie the staff wore. Fairman and her staff even spent months fine-tuning the hunter green leather-bound menu covers made by the Fontenelle Supply Company in the East Village. Everything here has an air of class and elegance without the snobbery. But the term approachable rings true, whether you are inquiring about something on the menu, asking for a recommendation, or making a special request. Diners could easily make this a weekly stop on their rotation of restaurants, go here for a night out celebrating, take a client you want to impress, or bring someone for a special date and know that the experience of Oak Park will be a layer to the memory. Even the bar area in the center of the restaurant offers a tad more casual feel to dining. While my dinner did cost more than $200 with tip, 
Keep in mind that I tried a lot of dishes on purpose. You could skip the appetizer and dessert, opt for one of the $4 desserts instead, more on that to come in the future in a future article, or not order the soup and salad and still have a filling and memorable meal. I didn't even try any of the wines or additional cocktails. So is Oak Park worth the hype? Absolutely. Fairman and her team of executive chef Ian Robertson, executive pastry chef Jess Robertson, general manager Damon Murphy, director of operations Bill Dorman, and wine director Sam Tuttle have a winner on their hands that brings Des Moines into the national conversation of great restaurants. It's that good. And where to find Oak Park, its uh, address is 3901 Ingersoll Avenue here in Des Moines. And you can call that uh, for a reservation at 515-620-2185. Or if you have a computer, Oak Park, Des Moines, or Oak Park, and then dsm.com. Now, the hours are open Tuesday through Saturday from 4.30 to 9.30 p.m. Reservations can be done at exploretalk.com. Okay, well, if we're talking about new things and and development, here's something uh, happening in the Valley Junction area and beyond. There's a new sign of things to come in Valgate District. This is uh, the uh, the author of this uh, column is New Addison Lathers is her name. Say its name, Valgate District. A new sign went up recently signaling to travelers entering West Des Moines on Grand Avenue that they are now in in the city's Valgate District, an area encompassing all businesses on either side of Grand, excuse me, between 1st and 4th Streets. But when did the area, recently the site of a major reworking of Grand Avenue and with new and revamped businesses in the works, get that name? According to Linda Schimmel, a development coordinator, it was Valgate long before the retro-styled sign was erected. In 2006, one of her first jobs with the city involved initiating a study to look into redeveloping the area. When you have an older part of town, you have good businesses and some of those that are struggling. There's infrastructure issues, Schemmel said. She continued, we decided to initiate a redevelopment plan, and as part of it, we had to establish a district. And so, Valgate was born. The city council approved the Grand Avenue redevelopment plan in 2012 with the Valgate name identifying the area as the West Des Moines... Eastern Gateway, while paying homage to businesses and streets nearby that bore the name Val, short for Valley, as in nearby Valley Junction. The Val Air Ballroom, a local landmark undergoing a major renovation, is one of those establishments. There's also the Val Lanes Bowling Alley. A new Hy-Vee Fast and Fresh has opened, and just across the Des Moines side of the line is the brand new Either Or restaurant and brewery. West Des Moines took its time making Valgate official. City staff waited until after the Grand Avenue reworking, which added lanes and access drives for businesses to move forward with signage. 
The work of Shive Hattery, a design and engineering firm, the sign is inspired by iconic images and colors from the 1950s, when the area was just was the core of the new, of the now much expanded West Des Moines. The city received bids to make and install the sign on August of 2022. Schemmel hopes this name catches on. The name is, is something, she said, the name is something that highlights what you can do in an area and was developed 70 years ago and still honors the original way it was, she said. To us, it's a success story. Another news, Sherman Hill Garage Axe's brewery plan to remain offices. A plan to redevelop a 103-year-old historic building in Des Moines, Sherman Hill neighborhood, into a restaurant and brewery is getting axed in favor of an office concept. The 13,000-square-foot garage building was zoned as an owner, uh, owner-occupied commercial space when Dev, Part, uh, Dev Partners acquired it and the adjacent 42-unit Concord Apartments at 732 18th Street in 2021. The structure served as a two-story parking garage and leasing, and leasing, office, at, and leasing office at the time. Jesse Kins, a project development manager with Dev Partners, appeared before the city's Historic Preservation Commission in September to get permission to replace the building's doors, windows, garage doors, and repair masonry and tiles. Kins confirmed the plan to shelve the brewery and return the building to its original office use. Already in Sherman Hill are Lua Brewing, established in late 2019, and Big Grove's Des Moines Tasting Room, which opened in July 2022. Dev Partners could not be reached for further details. And a vibrant coffee house uh, combines coffee and capital. Vibrant Coffee House celebrated its grand opening in Des Moines East Village at 520 East Grand on October 14th, though the cafe has been in a soft launch period since August. It's not just a restaurant with a high-spirited name. It's an extension of the of the Moline-based Vibrant Credit Union. The new business has coffee and espresso, energy drinks, ice cream, sandwiches, ice cream, sandwiches, and virtual banking. Guests can use interactive teller machine inside the cafe to make deposits, loan payments, take out cash, and speak with a teller remotely during their regular banking hours. Vibrant Credit Union members save 20% at all, uh, on all food and drinks when they use their Vibrant debit card debit or credit card. If the coffee house feels like a mating of Smoky Row and a bank, that's because it is. When Vibrant looked to open its own string of cafe credit op unions in 2022, Monty Bennett, the founder of Smoky Row, was brought in to spearhead the operation. Des Moines is Vibrant's uh, second location after Moline, Illinois, in the Quad Cities, and there are plans to open another coffee house in Bettendorf in December. According to the cafe's website, the credit union intends to operate 10 locations throughout the Midwest in the next three to five years. Back to you, Mark. Pharmacies declining in Iowa, Drake University study finds. This written by Brooklyn Drazy. Research by a Drake University professor has documented what he and others have known to be true, but some denied. Iowa's network of community pharmacies has been shrinking for more than a decade. 
Michael Andreski, Associated Professor of Pharmacy at Drake, conducted a study tracking open pharmacies in the state between 2008 and 2022. He found that the total number of pharmacies decreased by more than 10%, with the largest losses coming among independent business rather than the chains or franchises. Closures have been more common in rural than urban areas, but Andreski said every Iowan could feel the impact if actions aren't taken to help pharmacies handle high costs of operation. Patients are not going to be able to have access to the potentially life-altering medication therapy that normally you would expect to have available, he said. And people, frankly, in Des Moines or Cedar Rapids just assume that the ability is going to be there. And we've even seen that that study used data from health professionals tracking center at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine, which has recorded the number of pharmacists working in the state since the 1990s. Big losses of independence. There were 697 open pharmacies in 2008, with 377 located in rural areas and 320 in urban areas. In 2022, there were 601 pharmacies in Iowa, 305 in rural areas, and 296 in urban areas. Chain pharmacies saw the smallest change. A loss of 11 stores accounted for a 3% decrease, and independent pharmacies saw the largest hit. 87 stores closed, a 38% decrease. Hospital-sponsored pharmacies were the only subject subset to see more openings than closures. From 2008 to 2022, the number of hospital-sponsored pharmacies grew by 54% to 54 from 35. Almost one in 20 pharmacies in Iowa closed between 2018 and 2020. When a community pharmacy closes, Andreski said, Iowans are left without critical medical care. Certain medications can be sent by mail to households, but often patients are losing out on the chance to speak with the pharmacist about any concerns or other information they should know. Quote, that's what community pharmacies do. You go into the pharmacy and you can talk to that pharmacist and pharmacists in the 2020s are trained on techniques to help patients be successful as much as possible in their medication therapy, Andreski said. So that personal touch is gone. Also, some people cannot afford to wait days for their prescriptions to be mailed. A 40-minute drive to the pharmacy might be easy in the summer, but impossible in the winter. This lack of access could cause more problems for those already dealing with health issues. Researcher plans to map pharmacy uh, desserts. Now that that study is finished, Andreski said he and other Drake University researchers involved in the work will find the findings and use them to create maps of where community pharmacies operated in 2008 and 2022. Like food desert maps created by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, these 
maps will show where in Iowa people don't have to ha, don't have access to a pharmacy, depending on how far away they are from one. One of the goals behind the study is to be able to show legislators that there is a crisis in Iowa of its residents slowly but surely losing access to critical health care. Before now, no one was able to point to proof of pharmacies consistently closing, which is what Andreski said allowed lobbyists for pharmacy benefit managers to claim there weren't any problems at all. Pharmacy benefit managers work as a sort of middleman for insurance companies and pharmacies managing drug plans on behalf of providers. Governor Kim Reynolds in 2022 signed into law legislation that requires pharmacy benefit managers to update their reimbursement rate lists on a weekly basis, gives the Iowa Insurance Division oversight authority and prohibits the companies from reimbursing Iowa pharmacies at a lower rate than their own affiliate pharmacies. Andreski said pharmacy benefit managers make costs higher for community pharmacies, causing more to close and leave people without a pharmacy close by. He said when the Iowa Pharmacy Association contacted 97 independent pharmacies, almost half of them were either breaking even or losing money, and around 40% predicted that they might have to close in the next 12 months. Now pharmacy advocates will be able to point at this study when lawmakers ask if there's an actual problem that needs to be addressed. From what he's heard in speaking with pharmacists, Andreski said many are finding it hard to keep their businesses open. He said students he works with at Drake University's College of Pharmacy and Health Service are unsure of their professional future in Iowa and don't know if they'll be able to fulfill their desire to return to their hometowns and practice. Quote, people are looking to find a way so that the profession that they've invested in, economically and educationally and emotionally, can continue, Andreski said. There's a lot of almost to the point of despair in many pharmacists that we're not going to be able to keep keep things going. Bobby? Wow. Okay. Uh, Well, here's more good news. Stock's worst week in a month closes with still more losses. Uh, This is from the Associated Press. Wall Street racked up more losses Friday to close out its worst week in a month. The S&P 500 fell 1.3% for a fourth straight drop. The Dow Jones Industrial Average sank 0.9% and the NASDAQ Composite tumbled 1.5%. The stock market has been struggling under the weight of the bond market, where the yield on the 10-year Treasury brief Treasury briefly topped 5% late Thursday for the first time since 2007, according to TradeWeb. High yields make, oh, excuse me, according to TradeWeb, high yields make borrowing more expensive for everyone, and they slow the economy while dragging on prices for stocks and other investments. The yield on the 10-year Treasury was hanging with a pair of 5% early, uh, with a, within a hair of 5% early Friday morning before later easing back to 4.91%. It's been generally catching up to the Federal Reserve's main interest rate, which is already above 5 
0.25% and is and at its highest level since 2001. Yields swung a day earlier after investors took comments from Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell to indicate the central bank the central bank won't raise its main interest rate at its next meeting, November 1st. But financial markets are less sure about that, about what the Fed will do after that, and the central bank has said its upcoming moves will depend entirely on how inflation and the job market behave. Investors are pulling so many dollars out of riskier investments, such as junk bonds and global stock funds, and holding so much cash to protect themselves that a market, uh, market sentiment reading by Bank of America is signaling extreme bearish. On Wall Street, SolarEdge tumbled 27.3% after the solar technology company slashed its sales and profit expectations for the current quarter. The company blamed order cancellations in Europe due in part to slower-than-expected uh, installation rates. Other solar stocks also fell, including a 14.7% drop for the Enphase Energy. For Enphase Energy, regions. Financial sank 12.4% after it reported weaker profit than expected for the last latest quarter. Focus has been on the banking industry outside its biggest titans. It was under heavy pressure earlier this year after high interest rates helped cause three high-profile collapses of U.S. banks. Other regional banks were also weaker. Commercia fell 8.5%, reporting better profit for the summer than expected. Huntington Bank shares sank 3.9% after likewise topping earnings forecasts. SLB, the giant oil field services provider, fell 2.9% despite reporting stronger profit than expected for the summer. Its revenue fell shy of analysts' expectations. On the winning side of Wall Street was Knight Swift Transportation. The trucking company jumped 11.7% after reporting stronger profit for the latest quarter than expected. All told, the S&P 500 fell 53.84 points to 4,224.16. The Dow dropped 286.89 to 33,127.28. And the NASDAQ fell 202.37 to 12,983.81. The Russell 2000 index of smaller companies fell 21.91 points or 1.3% to 1,680.79. Mark? Iowa Cubs concession workers form union. Concession workers at Principal Park will soon be negotiating their first union contract after voting to organize earlier this month. The contract will cover about 120 concession workers employed by Sedexo USA, the company that operates concessions at the ballpark. The concession workers are not employed by the Iowa Cubs, according to Mark Lauritsen, International Vice President for the United Food and Commercial Workers. While votes to unionize are often publicly contentious, this union organization effort flew under the radar. Lauritsen said there was no friction with management. Quote, unions don't oftentimes say nice things about employees, but both the Iowa Cubs and Sodexo were respectful during this process. 
They respected their workers' rights, nobody interfered, and they allowed their workers to speak their minds. They were neutral during this whole process, said Lauritsen. Sodexo is not commenting on the union vote at this time, but may do so later down the road, Sodexo Vice President Paul Pettis said in an email. Lauritsen said he would be remiss if he did not mention Sodexo and the I-Cubs respecting the workers' rights to negotiate a contract. I think that's one of the things that needs to come back for workers and their voice. That's what you didn't hear, all of the news that generally comes around organizing campaigns because of the respect for the process from the union and the two managements involved, Lauritsen said, adding, listening to their workers and respecting their rights and remaining neutral during the process always helps in keeping this process a decent ton. He said the union will be meeting with employees to get input on what they want included in their collective bargaining agreement with Sodexo and then with company representatives to negotiate the contract. In addition to wages, Lauritsen said, there are a number of other key issues. It's hard to have a consistent schedule when you're working at a ballpark because you have to go off of what is happening at the park. So scheduling was an issue, said Lauritsen. Working conditions are also an issue, he said, especially if the heat of the summertime. We want to make sure the safety and health of our workers are being looked after. It can be 100 degrees out there, or even hotter, if you are working in a cooking area. The seasonality of baseball is another topic workers would like addressed. Seasons come and seasons go, so the ability to return and and return at the job and wages you're accustomed to is important, said Lauritsen. Sodexo is an international company with 422,000 employees and provides catering, facilities management, and personal home services to 100 million consumers daily in 53 countries, according to the Sodexo website. The company has several operations in Iowa, including food services at Drake University. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Mark Morrison, and my partner at the microphone has been Bobby Bailey. Earlier, you heard the brother duo of Dave and Ed Stutz. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.